Welcome to Behind the Wings, a new podcast by Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum. And we've got a lot to explore. Stories about how history shapes aviation today, trailblazers in space, and up-close looks at iconic aircraft of the past, present, and future. It's time to go Behind the Wings. I'm your host, Rick Crandall. Hello, everybody. With me is Wings Over the Rockies president and CEO, John Barry. John, what do we have for our friends today? Today's show is a conversation with Mike Ravens, who is president of the F-14 Tomcat Association, whose mission, they say, is to preserve the history of the greatest fighter jet the U.S. Navy has ever flown. Membership is open to anyone who has flown, worked on, or just plain loves the F-14 aircraft. So be sure to check them out in the show notes. And Rick, uh, what else do we know about Mike? Mike's a graduate of the Navy Fighter Weapons School, Top Gun, a commander of U.S. Naval Test Pilot School, has more than 4,700 flight hours in 58 aircraft and more than 700 carrier landings, which is exactly 700 more than I have. Today, he's the Director of System Integration Test and Evaluation at Northrop Grumman. Sound familiar? It should. It's the same company that built his beloved Tomcat. This episode is really cool because I had the opportunity to fly on the F-14, even though I'm an Air Force fighter pilot. We had exchange stores over in Iraq where the CAG for the aircraft carrier that I was uh, working with at the time switched jobs with me, and I got to fly in the F-14, and he got to fly on the Air Force fighters in the F-16. So we had a great time, and it's an awesome opportunity. Wow, indeed. Let's do get started. Mike Rabins, welcome to the show. Thank you. John's been so excited about this that I, I can imagine <laughs> the conversation coming. Before I turn it loose to him for a second, tell me about the association, the F-14 Association, and a little bit of the story of that. Sure. So back in the early 2000s, I was the wing commander at Point Magoo, and Northrop Grumman had a presence there. So one of the gentlemen uh, approached Mark Vance, who's currently the vice president, and I and said, you know, we really ought to form an F-14 association. And he correctly surmised that a lot of people love the F-14 and that we should uh, start it up. We do help where we can, and we want to keep the memory of the F-14 alive. Very good. That's great. When did, did your aviation career start? Well, when I was a kid, I always wanted to be an astronaut. And I knew the only way you could get to be an astronaut is to fly. And so I set my sights on an aviation career. I went to the University of Virginia on an ROTC scholarship. And uh, the big question mark in everybody's mind is when you're, uh, you're a graduating senior, you have to go get your flight physical. And if you don't pass the flight physical, then you're not going to be an aviator. Mm -hmm. If you do, then, you know, you, you compete like everybody else. So um, I did get selected for flight training and I was lucky. I did get a chance to go to F-14s directly out of the training command. And, and, and that was the beginning. But, you know, the, certainly the, the genesis of it was when I was a kid and, you know, look up all the time and watch airplanes. And I wanted to be one of them. <laughs> Yeah, we can all relate to that, can we? We know Top Gun's coming out, and we know the F-14 was the showcase for the first Top Gun movie back in the 18, 1980s. So uh, give us a little background about uh, your history with the F-14 and a little bit more about the F-14, how it started with the Tomcat. Sure, sure. I was very lucky. Got selected for F-14s right out of the training command. Uh, got selected for the West Coast, so that was uh, Naval Air Station Miramar in uh, San Diego County. And I couldn't be happier because uh, 
you know, I had a few friends on the West Coast already, uh, but it's a it's a, a you know a big community that you're joining that's pretty tight. So it didn't take long. As I was going through the replacement squadron, uh, we affectionately call the RAG, uh, to make lots of friends. And, you, and it starts with academics, and then you get into the flying, and it ends up with going to the carrier. So I started my training. Uh, I, and what year was that? 1979. Mm -hmm. uh, oh, I'm sorry. No, 1981. I graduated in 79. I uh, got my wings in 1981. I got through by December. So I went through basically in uh, just a little over six months. In the training command, you go to the carrier twice. For me, it was once in the T2 and once in the A4. And then going in a much bigger airplane, the F-14 was rather exciting because you get to do 10 day traps and six night traps. Mm. And so that's the first time anyone's seen the carrier at night. And um, of course we had a lot of practice and and then I uh, completed and went off to VF-114, which was my first squadron. Did you, Mike, in, in those early days in, for you in the, in the F-14 and certainly the F-14's early days, any you know you know any kinks they were still working out of the plane were challenges with with engines or anything? Well, well, sure, and I think a lot of people know the uh, the history of the F fourteen was they were working on a new fighter engine at the time, and so the way the contract was set up, depending on who you talk to, either the first thirty or the first thirty eight F fourteens were supposed to be with the TF thirty, which was viewed as an interim engine. And, uh, and then the rest were going to be with this new <clears throat> high technology engine. Uh, the development didn't work out. So we ended up with the TF 30 from Pratt and Whitney for quite a long time. And there were issues there. Um, uh, people that have seen any of the movies about the F 14 know that you've got, we had a, a little bit of a stall problem now to Pratt and Whitney's credit. I, I don't want to bash them here. You know, the Navy was using the, a non-afterburning TF-30. They put afterburners on it. They put it in a, a Mach 2.4 class fighter. And, uh, and there was some learning that went on. So there were some issues with compressor stall that they worked on by adjusting how the bleed air worked. There were some issues with um, some blade failures that they worked out by putting a titanium shroud around the engine. So... When I first got to Miramar, you know, it was pretty well known that there were that there were issues, uh, and that they were in work. And the the TF thirty that I flew on my last deployment on the carrier was certainly a lot more reliable than the TF thirties when I first showed up at Miramar in nineteen eighty one. I know audience is always interested in you know carrier landings, and you got seven hundred <laughs> carrier landings. That's pretty impressive. Uh, tell us a little bit about that because you know you always hear the stories about guys going. To, Particularly like in Vietnam, they go and they got that heart rate monitor and they go and get shot at and they come back and yeah, the heart rate goes up a little bit when they're getting shot at and they come back in a carrier and it goes off the roof. So tell us a little bit about carrier landings. Yeah, it, this is one that's it's hard to verbally describe it. You know, there's all kinds of uh, analogies that people have used over the years. You know, turn off all the lights in your house in the middle of the night with all the curtains drawn, you know, and run into the closet, uh, you know, and have a precise spot in the closet you're trying to hit because everything's dark. And, and I think most people, unless the weather's nasty, which of course it, you know, it was uh, on a fairly regular basis, you get accustomed to doing the day landings. You can never let your guard down, but once you're comfortable, you know, after you're kind of your first hundred traps, you get to the point where, you know, you know how to hit the numbers, you know what to do, 
turning in off the 180. You know how to hit the right numbers at the 90 position and the 45 as you and as you roll into the groove. And if you're very disciplined about that and get a good start, then you can actually, you know, fairly reliably get aboard and not embarrass yourself. You can, you, you know, people get pretty good at that. The varsity game, though, is at night. And oftentimes, uh, if people on the West Coast know about the maritime layer, it is not uncommon for there to be clouds at night. And the, therefore, as you come down in your penetration, you're looking at stars, maybe a moon, and you're looking at this cloud deck. And when you get to the cloud deck and get underneath it, you know, it's black. It is totally black. And now you are completely reliant on your instrument. So imagine, if you will, you know, the, the dash of your car. And you're going down the road at night and there's no street lights, no ambient light, no nothing. And oh, by the way, you don't really have headlights either, but you can just see this little tiny dot. When you get about three miles out, you can see this little tiny dot. And it's kind of, if you look at my hand, it's kind of bobbing up and down like this. <laughs> and as you get closer, you start to see the outline of the landing area. But when I say closer, I mean inside a mile. So you're looking at just the one little dot mm. from three miles in. About three miles is when you push over from 1,200 feet and start your glide path. And you're going, you're about 600 foot per minute rate of descent. And your instruments, instruments, instruments outside. And that's the way it is all the way down. Mm. You want to stay on the instruments at night until almost a half mile. You almost can't stand it anymore. Because if you get that good start, then if you fly meatball lineup angle of attack, you know, you've only got about mm -hmm. 15 more seconds till you land and you're listening to the landing signal officer over the radio. Hopefully he's not saying anything because that means you're doing okay, but he may be trying to help you and saying a little power, um, you know, just to make sure you don't start a, a higher rate of descent, but you come down and land, but you're so keyed up. And that's the part that's hard to just describe. Uh, you know, to a to an audience on a podcast, you are so keyed up. You land in about 275 feet. You come to a complete stop. So you're going 150 miles an hour, and in under 300 feet, you're now stopped. You got to look for the director. When they pull you back a little bit, you have to raise the hook, and then you have to do this precision taxi to your night spot. And it's dark. It is very very mm -hmm. dark. And so most people, and I am one of them. By the time they finally get you to your final spot, you put the parking brake on and they chalk you and start to chain you down. You know, you, you are keyed up so much that a lot of people, including me sometimes, our knees would be shaking, not from fear, but from the adrenaline. You know, we, we mastered mm -hmm. it one more time and got on deck safely. And, uh, and of course, there's people behind you that have to land too. So you want to get out of the landing area quickly. Uh, you want to expeditiously park. So it's it's quite the ordeal. And I don't think you ever get used to that. Even on a nice night with no clouds and a bright moon, you, you know, you're still keyed up because you can't afford to let what you think you see get you off the instruments because things can be deceiving. There's a plane guard ship and it's going up and down. There's a helicopter off the right side of the carrier. So you have to just be focused completely. And, and the people that master it, and obviously thousands and thousands of people have over the years, they learn how to just tune it all out, much like you see in a sports movie, you know, where they, the, the pitcher or the quarterback is able to tune it all out and just focus. And, and so uh, hopefully that gives you a little bit of a flavor of what, about what it's like. Yeah, absolutely. What, what yeah. about 
when this machine, when this, you know, a lot of people consider a really beautiful machine shows up in uh, the inventory, you know, what is its impact on naval aviation? What could you do that you couldn't do before? Why was it so valuable? Sure. Well, it was really a game changer. And um, they were working on weapon systems and they were looking at what the threat was at that time. So we're talking about, you know, the first flight was in 1970. The first deployment was when we evacuated from Saigon in 1975. Um, and, you know, and we were looking at a very different world back then, although <laughs> recent affairs uh, would tell me there's some similarities. But the, the Soviet Union was quite dominant. The Cold War was, you know, I'll say fairly cold. But there were a lot of tensions in the world. And uh, they wanted something that could intercept and prevent the Foxbat and other you know, high-speed enemy aircraft, because it wasn't just Russia, but it wanted to be able to protect the carrier battle group from um, whatever would come its way trying to do harm. So they had been working on this system. It was actually originally on A-12 uh, that was a big missile that could go a long way. Uh, it, it The uh, the AUG-9 radar was what was in the F-14A, and then the AIM-54 Phoenix. Now, there was an AIM, I think, 49 bef before that, but the AIM-54 put the F-14 in a position that literally no other airplane at that time uh, could be in, in that it could track up to 24 targets at a time. It could actually support up to six Phoenix in the air at a time, and there's uh, footage out there on YouTube that people can find of the six on shit, six on six shot that they did close to where I live uh, at, off of the Point Magoo Naval Air Station coast. And, and nobody could do that. Every other airplane at that time had the AIM-7 Phoenix or the AIM-9 Sidewinder, which were great missiles, but it was a one at a time situation. Uh, the AIM-54 Phoenix was launch and leave. So if you had to maneuver you know, it got to a point where it would actually search out the target on its own. And that capability was truly groundbreaking. In addition to that, because of the design of the airplane, it could go out a long ways and it can stay out there a long time. And uh, that gave the battle group uh, great capability too. Now, interestingly enough, the airplane was designed with an air to ground capability that really didn't come to the, to the fore until the late nineties and, and, uh, you know, I'd say the last 10 years that the airplane was out there, it got the lantern pod, it got night vision systems, it got precision strike weapons. And so that's that's a whole nother chapter on the airplane. But when it came out, to answer your question, it had a Mach 2 class fighter that could take off and land from a carrier. And with this Phoenix weapon system was an extraordinarily powerful capability to uh, defend the battle group from uh, what appeared to be you know, literally hordes of airplanes that could come over the horizon. Oh, that's great. Again, we'll go back to this Top Gun thing because when Top Gun came out, they learned about uh, you know what you guys were doing there. And that was the best recruiting movie we ever had for the United States Air Force, <laughs> as well as the Navy. But uh, you know, I, as we talked about at the beginning, I, I had an opportunity to fly in the backseat of an F-14 of the Saratoga one time when I was a ops group commander in Saudi Arabia. So it didn't have a stick in the back seat, you know, that, that was a shocker. And, but, you know, the systems that you had and the capabilities, you know, we went from that TF-30 to 
the GE 110 and maybe talk about some of the transitions. You went to Lantern and you went to an air-to-ground capability as well as an air-to-air intercept capability. But, you know, try to tie in uh, Top Gun training uh, during that time frame with this new development. Sure, sure. So um, that's a big ask, but I'll do my best. So when I first got to VF-114, my first squadron, there was a system for the airplane called TCS, Television Camera Set, and it was designed to allow you to visually ID prior to the merge. So you could use your forward firing weapons, uh, or you could do you could basically shoot before you get to the merge, because uh, the experience from Vietnam, as a lot of people know, was that if you get into a what we call the phone booth, if you get into a dogfight. Mm-hmm. A big airplane does not have an advantage. You know, everyone's going to see you, and that's bad. So you want to shoot people in the face. Without that TCS system, because not everybody had them yet, we actually put a rifle scope. We literally mounted a rifle scope aligned with the uh, armament data line on the airplane. And if you, you know, it was a little tricky, but as you would get to a certain range, like maybe seven miles, you would start looking through that rifle scope. So, so that was the technology in 1981. And then the the uh, I went to Top Gun uh, later in in 1983. That was still what we were flying with. And so at that time, you were learning three things in in Top Gun. But I will say that you felt like you were the king of the hill, but you were going up against the experts, and they had taken taken the A fours and the F fives and taking everything out of them but what you needed for safety of flight. So it was, even though you were flying, you know, what we thought was the world's greatest fighter, I'm sure F-15 guys and F-16 guys might disagree, (laughs) but you still had to be on the top of your game. So they taught you how to employ the weapon system. They taught you how to fight the airplane. And most importantly at all, and this doesn't really come out in, in the movie, is they taught you how to be a trainer. They taught you how to be a teacher because you were really your mission was not to just go around and go to the bar and say, I'm the best. Your mission was to go back to your squadron and teach everybody in the squadron what you had just learned in the Top Gun course. So they taught you how to professionally brief a flight, how to debrief a flight. And and um, when they when they brought the ACMI and the tax ranges online, you know, you couldn't really bluff your way mm-hmm. through a flight. But I, in my first tour in my squadron, before I went to Top Gun, you know, I went to many debriefs where, you know, we used to kind of jokingly say, first one to the blackboard wins. You know, you could... That's exactly right. <laughs> you could put your spin on it. You know, now it's a whiteboard, mm-hmm. but, you know, you could put your spin on it and you could, you know, cover up some of your mistakes. What Top Gun taught you is set all egos aside. It's a learning experience. Every engagement, every sortie, every time is a learning experience. And you want to wring as much learning out of that as you can. And if you if you let ego get in the way because you said something egotistical or because you know someone else felt like they had to be defensive, then the learning kind of stops. So the Top Gun mm-hmm. method was incredibly effective at te- teaching you how to be a good teacher, mentor, instructor, and to take that and everything you learned back to the squadron. So that's that's the Top Gun part. And once you got that patch, once you graduated, every squadron you go to, they expect you to do that because they're always going to be there's always going to be other Top Gun graduates around. But you would only get as a squadron, you would get one crew per turnaround. So I went on my first deployment. We came back. We stood down for a while. Uh, my Rio and I 
went to Top Gun. And then we were in training for the next cruise. And my job was to make sure that all the new folks that came after me could employ the airplane, not just the airplane, but the weapon system too. So uh, a lot, I guess what I'm trying to say is it was a blast and it was great flying, but it was a lot of responsibility too. And you did not, you know, if you flew, as you often did, you would fly a sortie on the tax range at El Centro, which is, you know, a half hour from Miramar by air, land at El Centro, debrief, refuel, fly another sortie on the tax range, land, debrief, and then do the third flight was just an administrative flight home. When you got home that night, you know, you had spent at least an hour in the debrief after every sortie. You were exhausted. You had to be committed. And of course, the squadrons picked people that would be committed. But, you know, I, I don't know really of anybody that ever washed out. But I, I, I've heard, you know, people that just didn't have the right attitude and didn't didn't take the teaching part of it seriously. And they did not graduate. Now, it's probably only a handful over, you know, 30 years, but pretty uh Pretty awesome responsibility. That's good. So I'm going to have you stop there because because we've got a little bit of time left. Real question. Um, last one for me. You know, so the 70s, the 14, the 15 and the 16, right? The the 14 is done in about 2006. But, you know, still here, of course, in Denver at Buckley, we've got F-16s out there. They've just returned from another deployment. And what what was what was the difference? Why? Why? Did the F-14's mission come to an end in, in 2006, and why did the 15 and 16 continue? Yeah, I, I'll, I guess if it's okay with you, I'll throw the F-18 in too, because that's- Yeah, of course. Of course. Mm -hmm. So every airplane was designed for a slightly different mission. Um, the F-14 was designed as a multi- Today we call it a multi-role fighter, but the concern at the time was not using the F-14 to put ordnance on the bad guys. The concern was to make sure that they had a carrier to come back to, to refuel, rearm, and go out again. So the F-14 had a swing wing, so, which made it much uh, slower for the carrier approach, but it could be you know, uh, supersonic, uh, could carry, carried a lot of gas, it could carry more with the tanks, could carry six Phoenix or two, two and two, which is what we often flew with on deployment, two Phoenix, two Sparrow, two Sidewinders, plus the gun. Um, it, so it was really designed for that. The uh, Air Force Lightweight Fighter Competition, which yielded both the, the, you know, the YF-16 and the YF-17, which became the F-18. In those cases, I think they were really looking at an air-to-ground role with air-to-air uh, -air capability as secondary, as opposed to the F-15, which was an air-to-air -air role purely. It was air superiority, uh, although the F-15E Strike Eagle then certainly took advantage of the, you know, the great airplane that F-18 is. I will admit the F-16 and the F-15 are great airplanes. And the Air Force has continually updated them. The uh, the Block 60 and Block 70 F-16 is not like the F-16A that first came out. And of course, the the Strike Eagles and uh, the new version of the Eagle uh, are, are you know far far beyond what the original airplanes came out as. But, but the answer to your question basically is the mission. Then the Navy... They knew that the A6, uh, they didn't know at the time the A6 was going to retire, but, you know, you always have to refresh. They were mainly re interested in replacing the A7. So the Navy started with the F-18 as a strike fighter, but 
and they bu built in really good air-to-ground and air-to-air weapon capability, but they originally replaced all the A-7 squadrons. Then, as the F-14, was, they decided to sunset the F-14. Of course, now you've got the F-18E and F coming along. It's, it's, got, it's bigger, it's got more capability, and it was a good successor. The weapon system in the F-18 is phenomenal, as I know is also true of the F-15 and the F-16. But, but you really have to go back to what did the service purchase it for, and, and that describes why they're different. And, of course, the Navy airplanes have to have much beefier gear for that uh, the carrier operations. Well, we're really proud to be able to have an F-14 here in our museum here at Wings Over the Rockies Air and Space Museum, the old Lowry Air Force Base. And, uh, you know, it's one of those things where you look back on your time flying this amazing airplane and, now we got, you know, the legacy of the F-14. So what's your, what's your thought? What do you tell people that when they ask you, what was it like to fly the F-14, the legacy of this thing? Sure. I can quite sincerely say for me, it was a dream come true. I mean, I, I always uh, will remember quite fondly just the, the feeling as any you know, fighter pilot can tell you, of being the master of your universe. You know, you you can do anything that the airplane can do. You can fly upside down, you can do aileron rolls, you can, you know, you can maneuver the airplane and master it. You've got an incredible weapon system. And and I still occasionally have dreams where I'm back in a squadron and I'm flying. I think it was just <laughs> such a big part of my life. Um, it, I think we it, all do, yeah. Yeah, I'm excited to say that even though starting in World War II through Korea, Vietnam, the Gulf Wars and all that, there's still a need for uh, and the mission of air superiority. We still have to be able to protect our forces. And so I'm glad I was part of that when I was active duty in the Navy. And I'm glad to see that there are still pilots. They're flying you know, much more advanced models of airplanes now, the F-18 EF, et cetera. But um, they are still doing that mission, and it's still needed. We still have to be able to protect our troops on the ground. And, and I will say, the F-14 went out on the top of its game. Now, I, I was not deployed. I was uh, in the test world uh, the last part of my career. But when the F-14 did its last deployment with those advanced weapons that we talked about earlier, the Lantern, the night vision system, the precision-guided weapons, they loved it. The special forces loved the F-14. The ground troops loved the F-14 because it could hang out a long time. And if the time came to come down and eliminate uh, an enemy encampment or something, it could do that quite quite spectacularly. So, so I've got nothing but fond memories of my whole experience with the F-14. And I'm glad to see that the fighter aviation is alive and well, and I think will be into the future. So for Speaking of into the future, hopefully with uh, the wonderful education programs uh, here at Wings, hopefully some some younger potential aviators will see this and, and hear your passion for flying. What, what do you tell the, the next generation of those that'll climb in there like you did with, with big dreams? Yeah, thanks. Uh, great, great question. So the first thing I would tell them is to go see aviation movies. And a friend of mine was at the premiere of Top Gun. I was not there. But he said it's better than the first one. Mm. And the reason I would tell people to do that is because that gets people excited. And you need to be excited because it's not always the most popular thing in school to, to concentrate on science and to concentrate on engineering and other things. It is true that you can go to flight training in the Navy without all that. But 
that basic education is essential. You have to have a college degree to go through pilot training in the Navy. But if you can prepare yourself with a solid technical education, then that prepares you for being able to employ the weapons more effectively because you understand you know, the, the dynamics of a air, air engagement with multi, multiple airplanes versus multiple airplanes. You can uh, employ your tactics better. And, and so I tell kids, please pay attention in school and work hard in school and learn all that so you can get into a good college so that then you can go to flight training. Uh, the Navy was a great career, very rewarding. You can go in and just do your initial tour and get out. And many of my friends did. They went to the airlines and had a great career. Or you can stay in, as I did, for 25 years and have a fantastic career. But it all starts with paying attention and working in school. All right. Good place for us to end it right there. Thanks for that great advice to young people. And that's the focus of this museum. Our mission is to educate and inspire people of all ages, but about aviation and space for the past, the present, and the future. And you've really helped us uh, really see that legacy of a great weapons system like the F-14 Tomcat and bring that to the forefront. Mike, thanks a lot for this. It's been a wonderful session, and we really do appreciate it. Over to you, Rick. Thank you, Mike Rabins, for joining us. Man, that was so interesting. You know what I... What I love about this, John, is the timing of us doing this with uh, Top Gun Maverick coming out. And so getting a little bit more of the history of the F-14, which I know was in the first movie, but still ties to the second. I just loved it. What, what were your takeaways? Well, the exciting part about, you know, really talking to a person that actually flew the airplane and has the background and the history of the aircraft and what it meant to the U.S. Navy. And you're right. I mean, the fact that this F-14 was the showcase for the first Top Gun movie, and of course the F-18 will be the showcase aircraft for this new one coming out. So it's an exciting time to talk about the legacy and the future as we move forward. I can just imagine the F-18 and F-14 guys getting into a war about whose movie was the best (laughs) now, right? Well, that's going to do it, folks, for episode two. Thanks for listening to Behind the Wings. Now, be sure to visit wingsmuseum.org to join the conversation and access the show notes. We'll be back soon with another episode of Behind the Wings. Head over to iTunes or wherever you listen to subscribe and leave a review. It helps us a lot. It really does, and we appreciate it. See you next time on Behind the Wings.